My name is Gordon Stewart, pastor of Westminster Church and moderator of the Westminster Town Hall Forum. These forums have been broadcast since 1980 to promote public dialogue by presenting voices of conscience on key ethical issues. Few people are better equipped to address the forum than today's speaker, Professor Lonnie Guineer. Lonnie Guineer may be unique in that she is one of the few household names in America known more for what she did not do than for what she did, by what she did not have a chance to say than for what she did have a chance to say. She became a household name when a firestorm of protest and misrepresentation erupted following her nomination by the President for the post of Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights, and her name was subsequently withdrawn. Since that time, some of her writings have been compiled in her new book, The Tyranny of the Majority. In that book, contrary to widespread public perception, Professor Guineer wrote, my life's work has been to try to find the rules that can best bring us together as a democratic society. Drawing on the tradition of James Madison, who regarded the tyranny of the majority, the major threat to democracy, she wrote, I have a predisposition to seek a body politic in which all perspectives are represented and in which all people work together to find common ground. A graduate of Yale Law School, former assistant counsel for the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, a published legal scholar and contributor of fresh approaches to ensure the civil rights of racial and other minorities, Lonnie Guineer is professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania. In a world where ideas shrink into sound bites and where what Sheldon Hackney calls drive-by debates replace public dialogue, the Town Hall Forum is privileged to give this platform to a woman whose voice calls for something better for the American people, a society where yelling gives way to conversation, where ideas become important again, and where there are no permanent winners or losers. Her topic today is the unfinished agenda of the civil rights movement. Please join me in welcoming to the Town Hall Forum, Professor Lonnie Guineer. Thank you very much. Not too long ago, my son and I were having breakfast, listening to NPR in Philadelphia, and my voice came on the radio. And my son turned to me and he said, Mom, why are you famous? <laughs> and I said, well, the president nominated me for an important job, and then he changed his mind, and my son who is seven, said, oh, you mean he dumped you. <laughs> I said, well, I guess you can say that, but I tried to stand on principle, and some people respected that stand. And he said, you mean people like you? <laughs> I said, yes, some people like me, and he said, oh, you. He was really worried, and according to his teacher, whom I met with recently, back in September and October, on Monday mornings when they had sharing, he would come in and talk about how he had to protect or defend his mom. He wasn't entirely sure what he was protecting or defending her from, but he knew it was his obligation to protect her. But the teacher said, don't worry. He really has worked this through in the intervening period, and back in March, after the teacher had seen me on several television shows, she came in on Monday 
to initiate the conversation with Nicholas about having seen his mother all over the television and he turned to her very dismissively and said, oh, I know, it's the book, the book. <laughs> and then a couple weeks ago I was in California and it was very hard for me to call Nicholas because of the time difference and two days passed without my speaking with him and I finally got a chance to make a telephone call. My husband answered the phone and I said, well, let me speak to Nicholas. And Nicholas got on the phone and I said, hi, sweetheart, how are you? And he said, who is this? <laughs> and I said, it's your mom. Who did you think it was? And he said, Lonnie Guineer. <laughs> so he's had a lot to deal with over the past year. At the time, a year ago, I was defined very differently, at least in the public mind. You may recall some of the press descriptions. One of my favorites was the opening paragraph to a story in U.S. News and World Report that began, strange name, strange hair, strange writings. She's history. Another in the Philadelphia Inquirer, my hometown newspaper, if she testifies before the Senate, real America, capital R, capital A, will see her as a mad woman. Well, with those kind of press notices, President Clinton responded like a new Democrat. He held a press conference and announced his decision to withdraw my nomination as Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights. But immediately thereafter, the President retreated to a dinner party where the New York Times reports that in my absence, the President became once again an old Democrat. He reportedly said, and I quote, I just love her. If she needed $5,000, I would lend it to her, no questions asked from my personal account. But while the president, whether as a new or old Democrat, trusted me as a person, he just couldn't give me authority to enforce his administration's civil rights policies. In his eyes, I could cash a check, but I could not hold check. Holding check is a term used by young men and women at Germantown High School in Philadelphia. To hold check means to have influence to be able to enforce a promise. Given the controversy surrounding my nomination, I could not hold check on civil rights. In a strange way, my nomination came to symbolize the state of denial in which we find ourselves on issues of civil rights in particular, but race in general. America has nothing against individual blacks. Americans support the advancement of individual black achievers. The president is committed to a cabinet that looks like America. The president will even lend some black friends money. <laughs> but when it comes to discussing race, our policy comes close to the one on gays in the military. Don't ask, don't tell, don't pursue. Talking about race has become synonymous with violating the rules. It doesn't matter how quietly or carefully you speak, the policy is don't ask, don't tell. In the name of race neutrality, our politicians do not want to talk about race anymore and instead talk in loaded, coded euphemisms. Three strikes and you're out. Two years and you're off. Race has become the new four-letter word. And so I was not allowed to speak for myself about innovative ideas for ensuring that people of color have a voice, not just a vote. We seem to have forgotten that dialogue and intergroup communication are critical to forging consensus. I do not believe that avoiding controversy is the same thing as building consensus. Nor do I believe that talking about controversial issues is what creates controversy. For example, the controversy about race preceded my nomination. Talking did not exacerbate that controversy. Not talking did. 
Genuine debate was shut down by techniques of stereotyping and silencing. As Harvard professor Randy Kennedy observes, I was punished as the messenger reporting the bad news about our racial situation. I dared to speak when I should have been silent. They didn't ask, but I told. One of the reasons I was committed to pressing forward with confirmation hearings is that I knew that a Senate hearing was not just another daytime television talk show. Given the controversy that my nomination had attracted, a Senate hearing would have been an unusual, proactive opportunity to turn the attention of the American people back to the unfinished agenda of civil rights. But that discussion must still occur, if not in a Senate hearing room, then in other fora created by those of us who feel deeply about racial justice and fundamental fairness. So I am very grateful to be here today to speak at a forum which I hope is just one of many similar fora in which to discuss the undiscussable, the meaning of race in America. We are in a state of denial. Remember the policy, don't ask, don't tell. But what are the costs of this policy? Certainly my nomination was a casualty, but really this was not about a job for me. Unlike many black people, unlike many disabled people, unlike many women and poor people, I have a job. I have a great job. I'm a tenured law professor and I have a job for life and I never gave up my day job. So this was not about how I was treated personally, but rather about a country's obligation to its fundamental values. Why should people who are ignored, who are disrespected, or who are written out feel any commitment to continue to work within the system? Ultimately, my nomination is merely a metaphor, a metaphor for the way people of color and the issue of race and racism are viewed by too many other people in this society. My nomination has become history. Likewise, civil rights and issues of racial justice and fairness have been consigned to a similar fate. They once were important, but unless we want to be known as race-obsessed radicals, we are no longer permitted to discuss race in polite conversation, and certainly not in law review articles. Remember the policy, don't ask, don't tell, don't pursue. In so many ways, my nomination symbolized the perception gap between people of color and whites on issues of race and racism. We are letting others define us. We are letting the appearance of diversity pass for genuine diversity, and we are not talking about race. They don't ask, and we don't tell. The 1968 Kerner Commission was a bipartisan presidential advisory group, and it was formed by President Johnson to investigate the issue of race and racism in America. The Kerner Commission in 1968 found that the nation was then rapidly moving toward two increasingly separate Americas. Within two decades, the Kerner Commission predicted a white society principally located in suburbs, in smaller central cities, and in the peripheral parts of large central cities and the Kerner Commission predicted a black society largely concentrated within large central cities. The Kerner Commission, the 1968 Kerner Commission, is still news today because its lessons have not been heeded. After the passage of 26 years and seven presidents, the society remains just as the commission aptly described, one nation divided. Just as Kerner predicted, blacks and whites are living in what Newsweek magazine called an icy detente, a world of perceptual dichotomies. Regardless of political ideology, there is a new form of separatism taking root. Relations between blacks and whites are largely characterized by serious misunderstandings and a massive failure to communicate with each other. From politicians to media pundits to academic policymakers, we are all uncomfortable discussing race. Now some of this discomfort simply reflects the polarization of the last 12 years in which national civil rights policy emphasized reverse discrimination, 
fed white fears of racial preferences and discussed discrimination exclusively in terms of innocent victims and guilty perpetrators. Rather than discussing discrimination as an institutional or structural phenomena in which we all participate to some extent. Indeed, the continued effects of the history of racism in this society occur with no individual ill will at all. Yet over the last 12 or so years, we have been conditioned to think of racial discrimination solely in terms of individuals and solely in terms of individual bad actors. We have been told that if we provide remedies for the innocent victims of racism and if we penalize those individuals who do discriminate, then the problem will be solved. Yet discrimination is a societal, not just an individual problem. Moreover, when civil rights enforcement is reduced to the identification of blameworthy individuals, it is not surprising that many resist its message. No one wants to be called names. And calling people names does nothing to advance our collective interest in strengthening our mutual ability to participate in the global market. Instead, it simply polarizes the debate, creating what a Canadian journalist described as a marketplace of emotion rather than a marketplace of ideas. Yet polarizing the debate was the explicit strategy of some earlier administrations. Indeed, William Bradford Reynolds, who was the head of the Civil Rights Division in February of 1988, wrote a memo in which he spelled out the then Reagan administration policy. And I quote from this February 1988 memo of William Bradford Reynolds. We must polarize the debate, he said. We must not seek consensus. We must confront. We must polarize the debate, he said. And so we suffer in an increasingly polarized environment in which we are afraid even of talking to each other. Remember the policy. Don't ask. Don't tell. On the other hand, some of the discomfort about racial dialogue reflects real shifts in the public mood about affirmative action, about violent crime, and about the need for continued government intervention once formal barriers to equal opportunity are struck down. But some of this discomfort simply masks racial bias across the political spectrum. In a recent National Science Foundation-funded study, liberal and conservative whites were almost equally willing to express negative characterizations about blacks. 45% of white liberals and 51% of white conservatives agreed that blacks are aggressive or violent. 44% of the conservatives and 41% of the liberals said blacks are boastful. This bias, by the way, is not confined just to what whites think about blacks. Other studies funded by the National Conference of Christians and Jews have found that this bias is across racial and ethnic lines and it permeates our feelings about each other. Blacks have biased views about Latinos. Latinos have biased views about Asian Americans. We are living, as Newsweek said, in a world of perceptual dichotomies. Well, I say that much of this bias reflects the absence of an honest dialogue about race across racial and ethnic groups who, despite background similarities, live fundamentally different and separate lives. Middle-class, college-educated blacks report continuing encounters with racial discrimination and prejudice and yet those encounters, for the most part, remain invisible to their white counterparts. Only 8% of college-educated blacks feel things have gotten better in the last 10 years. 70% of college-educated blacks think things got worse. And yet many blacks do not talk about their own experience with discrimination. They fear being punished twice, first for being black and second for being angry. So the experiences of many black people remain invisible, although according to Ellis Coase in his new book, The Rage of a Privileged Class, many blacks seethe quietly inside. And as a result of their silence, many whites enjoy amiable assumptions about racial progress. And many whites are afraid to talk about their perceptions for fear of being called racist. 
And as I said, no one wants to be called names. I can assure you of that from personal experience. Well, 26 years ago, the Kerner Commission called for national action in three areas. One, improving equal opportunity, eliminating formal barriers to equal opportunity. Two, addressing the plight of the disadvantaged. And three, increasing communication across racial lines. Well, the nation's civil rights emphasis has been, to the extent we have even thought about it, on the first Kerner goal, dealing with formal barriers to equal opportunity. We've talked a little bit, not much, about the second, addressing issues of poverty and disadvantage. But what about the third, changing attitudes? Ironically, our failure to create new attitudes or to overcome polarization may help account for the current paralysis in which we believe the problems defy solution, or that the solutions are the problem. While we have witnessed the appearance of greater public tolerance, attitudes have not necessarily changed. They've just gone underground. Thomas Pettigrew did a very interesting study in the 1980s about the formal lessons of the legal struggle against racial discrimination. He argued, and I quote, ambivalence, denial, even guilt, all act to cause modern anti-black prejudice to be expressed in increasingly indirect and subtle forms. Three such forms are indirect microaggressions against blacks, avoidance of face-to-face -face interaction with blacks, and opposition to racial change for ostensibly non-racial reasons. According to Thomas Pettigrew, survey evidence suggests that opposition to racial change for apparently non-racial reasons is a widespread expression of modern prejudice. And Pettigrew's findings are echoed by the observations of a sociologist quoted recently by Time magazine. This sociologist said Americans believe two inherently contradictory things. The first thing that Americans believe is that all people are created equal. The second, the sociologist said, we also believe that blacks are inherently inferior. Now, I recognize that the continuing economic and material inequality between people of color and white America cannot be erased simply by changing people's attitudes. As Henry Louis Gates observes, and I quote, poverty, white and black, can take on a life of its own to the point that removing the conditions that caused it can do little to alleviate it. The 80s may have been the Cosby decade, but you wouldn't know it from the South Bronx. It has but become clear, in other words, that the political economy of race and poverty can no longer be reduced to a mirror of what whites think of blacks, end quote. Well, certainly, Professor Henry Louis Gates has a point, but in some ways, he is missing my point. Without changed attitudes, it is impossible to bring about the consensus necessary to work together to eradicate the conditions that he describes. As Nobel laureate Toni Morrison reports, black people have become the way we talk about crime, about welfare, and about poverty. And since we can't talk about race, we don't talk about the real issues. We talk around them. Remember the policy. Don't ask, don't tell. A nation of laws, we like to believe that when they are changed, attitudes will change along with them. This, unfortunately, is naive. A New York Times columnist, Anna Quinlan, writes that when she goes around and talks to college audiences, she finds young white men who ask her questions worried about their future. What they want to know, she says, can it possibly hold for them when most of the jobs, most of the good positions, most of the spots in professional schools are being given to women and most especially to blacks? Well, these worried young white men, according to Anna Quinlan, have internalized the newest myth of American race relations, and it has made them bitter. And that's the myth of affirmative action. All good things in life, these young men have learned, from college admission to executive positions are being given to black citizens, and the verb is critical, given. Never mind that you can walk through the offices of almost any big company and see a sea of white faces. Never mind that with all that has been written about preferential treatment for minority law students, 
only about 7,500 of the over 127,000 students enrolled in law school last year were African Americans. Never mind that there are more black men in prison than in college. Never mind that for some black men, prison has become a way to obtain three square meals a day. Never mind that only 3% of the doctors in this country are black. And never mind that many young blacks still suffer the secrets of racism. Forty years ago, when Thurgood Marshall challenged segregation in the cases leading up to Brown versus Board of Education, he was crusading to overcome what he called stigmatic injury, the psychological wounds of racism. He was challenging separate but equal to tell blacks that they were equal to whites. He was crusading for black self-esteem. Black self-esteem. It was a problem demonstrated 40 years ago in Kenneth Clark's famous doll experiments in which the black children, north and south, preferred the white dolls. Black self-esteem is still a problem today. A white teacher in Montgomery, Maryland, wrote in February of 1994 that he had showed his sixth grade class a film based on a Langston Hughes short story about a young black boy who steals an elderly woman's purse. The woman then takes the young boy in and changes him through love. When the lights came on in the sixth grade classroom, the teacher asked the class what was the message of this film. In this class of 29 students, all but two were black or Latino. All but three were eligible to receive free lunch and one of the best students, a young black boy, raised his hand to answer the teacher's question. And the student said, and I quote, you knew something bad was going to happen when it started. As soon as you see a black boy, you know he's going to do something bad. The teacher said, just because he's black, he's bad? Answer, everybody knows that black people are bad. That's the way we are. Question. How many students in this class agree? 24 of the 29 students agreed that black people are bad. So the teacher, disturbed by the responses he was getting, pressed for. He said, well, are you using the word bad in some ironic sense? Do you mean cool or tough or hot? Or do you mean not good? Answer, not good. These students, 27 of whom were either black or Latino, these students carry the secret of racism inside them, harboring doubts about themselves. And so the chasm widens. Thus the key lesson of my experience last spring is that if we are going to move forward together as a society united to forge a common destiny, we must first commit to have a meaningful debate. We must start talking and listening to people who are unlike ourselves. We must speak out and say that the appearance of formal equality, the aspiration of colorblindness, does not mean that we are all now equal. We are different in critical ways, the most important of which is that we may use the same language, but we often mean different things. We may all think of ourselves as Americans, but we don't live next door to each other. We don't go to school together. We don't even watch the same television shows. TV Guide did a survey of the top 10 shows watched by whites and blacks, and there was not a single show that was on both lists. Most of all, we don't even talk to each other. Now, there are some politicians who are willing to engage in honest talk, one of whom is Senator Bill Bradley of New Jersey. After the Los Angeles riots, Senator Bradley declared, and I quote, when politicians don't acknowledge that just as slavery was our original sin, so race remains our unresolved dilemma, they cannot lead us out of crisis. Even more to the point, Senator Bradley asks the question, when is the last time any of you had a conversation about race with a person of another race? When is the last time any of you had a conversation about race with a person of another race. With the help of courageous politicians like Bill Bradley, we certainly can support the important work of public education and open dialogue. While we may feel some discomfort 
at such honest talk. Our common destiny depends upon it. Now, I acknowledge that this is hard. It is difficult to have a public debate about race, especially when Professor Cornell West tells us public life itself has been gutted. According to Professor West, and I quote, we've lived in a period in which the private has been cast as sacred and public life in general has been evacuated. Think of public education, think of public transportation, think of public health care, think of public provisions, and you usually think of squalor and you usually think of black and brown people. So according to Professor West, we get a withdrawal and retreat from public life. The former president of Penn, the new chair of the National Endowment for the Humanities, comes to the same conclusion. Current public debate is little more than posturing, he says. Our thoughts are polarized in the rapid fire exchange of sound bites. In this kind of argument, Sheldon Hackney declares, one is either right or wrong, for them or against them, a winner or a loser. And real answers, Hackney concludes, are the casualties of such drive-by debate. Well, building on the insights of both Professor West and Sheldon Hackney, I say we need to start a national conversation about race, about justice, and about fundamental fairness. We need to learn how to ask. We need to learn how to tell. And most important, we need to learn how to listen. But when we talk, we need not wait to speak until the anger boils over. We can be survivors, not victims. I appear here proudly as a woman with an issue, not a grievance. I am a democratic idealist committed to making America live up to its democratic ideals. So I say, yes, we can change the policy from don't ask, don't tell, to ask, and we shall tell. We shall speak proudly, but without bitterness, but we shall tell. Thank you very much. Not what you, it's not what you'd call a hostile audience. Thank you, Professor Guineer, for your presentation and for giving us the opportunity to hear your ideas firsthand, and now for the opportunity to engage you in discussion. The ushers will collect the questions from the audience here in the hall, and those of you who need to get back to work should feel free to leave at this time. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from the Westminster Presbyterian Church on the Nicolette Mall in downtown Minneapolis. Today's speaker is Professor Lonnie Guineer, who has just spoken on the topic, The Unfinished Agenda of the Civil Rights Movement. Today's forum is co-sponsored by the Star Tribune, Coles Media Company. The broadcast is made possible by a grant from the Twin Cities law firm of Lindquist and Venom. The radio listening audience may call in a question by calling 332-3421. Professor Guineer, would you come back to the podium so that we can begin the period of questioning? In your book, The Tyranny of the Majority, you tell the story of the brownie who won the hat-making contest because her mother, a hat maker, made it for her. You were eight years old when that happened. You use that illustration to talk about fair play and rules that encourage everyone. What political steps can be taken to ensure fair play in America for those whose mothers are not milliners? <laughs> well, the example that I use in the book occurred when I was eight years old and we had a hat making contest in the brownies and the winner was the daughter of a professional hat maker who actually made this winning entry in full view of all the participants including me at which point I resigned from the brownies. 
And I told that story at a forum in Florida, and a young woman came up to me afterwards and she said, Lonnie, I was in your brownie troupe and I always wondered what happened to you. <laughs> well, the question is, when a professional hat maker competes with amateur brownies, it's obvious that the rules are rigged. My point in the book is that sometimes, even when the rules appear fair in form, they operate in practice to exclude people, to make people feel that the process is not legitimate. I have talked about ways to make everyone feel that the process is legitimate, not only those who win, but those who lose. In this society, we have a tendency to reward the winners and to punish the losers. We reward the winners by giving 51% of the people 100% of the power. That's called majority rule. And we punish the losers by saying to the 49%, you get nothing. And where the same group of people, year after year after year, in fact, in some parts of this country for the entire century, find themselves among the 49%, the losers, that can undermine their confidence in the fairness of the system. They may feel that the system is not a legitimate outlet for them to express their grievances. They may feel, again, that they have a vote but no voice. So what I have talked about is a way in which we can have the majority getting some of the power, but not all of the power all of the time, and a minority getting to take its turn. And I use as an example my son's experience reading a Sesame Street magazine article about voting, where the magazine pictured six kids trying to decide what game to play and four of the kids had their hands raised because they wanted to play tag, and two did not raise their hands, they wanted to play hide and seek, and the magazine asked its readers, well, what game will the children play? My son, who at the time was four, said, well, they'll play both. First they'll play tag, and then they'll play hide and seek. In his mind as a four-year-old, he was giving the privilege of going first to the majority, to the four who wanted to play tag, and that was a way of recognizing that they had more people preferring that particular option. But he was also prepared to give the minority a turn. Essentially, that's what I have been struggling with, ways that give the majority the opportunity to go first or to play more often, but that also give the minority a turn. One of those ways is something called cumulative voting, but it's not the only way, and in many instances it may not even be the best way. But it is simply an, an effort to open up the public dialogue about alternative forms of election, alternative forms of decision-making that are basically positive sum. Everyone can win something. No one has to win everything, but neither does anyone have to lose all the time. Here's a question related to that, uh, I believe. What was the controversy about your position on, on redistricting in states to ensure black representation? What was your suggested solution? I don't think the controversy was about what I had written. I think the controversy was about ideas that were attributed to me based on phrases or sentences or words that may have been found in some of the articles that I wrote, but taking an isolated sentence out of context doesn't really give anyone the idea or a sense of what I have been talking about. For example, one of the controversial ideas attributed to me is that I did not agree with the notion of one person, one vote. Well, that's false. Not only do I believe in the notion of one person, one vote, I am committed to making the idea of one person, one vote not just an idea, but a reality. So if you read my essays, I talk about one person, one value, one vote, one value, that everyone's vote should count toward the election of someone who represents their views. 
So that's not inconsistent with one person, one vote. That's a way of expressing one person, one vote in a more participatory, a more democratic sense. How do you do that? Well, if you use cumulative voting to elect members of Congress in North Carolina, there was a big redistricting case called Shaw versus Reno, where the Supreme Court questioned a very, very strange-shaped district that was drawn to remedy a voting rights problem. I said, well, an alternative to drawing strange-shaped districts might be to give everyone in North Carolina the same number of votes as there are open seats. It turns out in North Carolina there are 12 congressional seats, so give everyone in North Carolina 12 votes. Let them distribute those votes in any combination of their choice. If they want to put all 12 on one candidate, they can. If they want to put six on two candidates, they can. If they want to put four on three candidates, they can. Let voters district themselves by the way they cast their ballots. This is a way to assure a politically cohesive minority, not based on race, but any politically cohesive minority, a, pol a group of Republicans, environmentalists, women, can all use cumulative voting, the system of voting, to elect representatives of their choice. But in addition, this is a strategy that may allow or encourage cross-racial coalitions because you don't have to put all of your votes on your most preferred candidate. You can bargain and trade your votes with other people who are like-minded. It is a way of assuring that everyone's vote counts toward the election of someone who expresses their interests, but it also encourages voters to think beyond their own narrow interests to think about the possibility of joining with other people, not just people who happen to live in your district and therefore be represented all by the same person. There's a question, two questions which take us in a little different direction. What can parents do to help create bridges between their children and the children of other races in the public schools? And how do you begin a conversation between races in our local community right here to change the perceptual dichotomy between the races of which you spoke. It's interesting, there was an article in today's New York Times about helping parents to become better emotional coaches for their children. And what the article said is if your child is sad or if your child is angry, that it's important for you not to deny the child's emotion and it's also important that you not simply distract the child, but if you are going to be a, quote, good emotional coach, you first want to identify the emotion or the feeling that the child has. Do you think you're feeling sad? Do you think you may be feeling sad for some reason in particular? And then, having gotten the child to identify and acknowledge the emotion, then work with the child to try and resolve the underlying conflict that led to that particular emotion. Well, I call that the therapeutic model of conflict resolution, and essentially that's the same model that I would advocate for trying to get people who live next door to each other but don't talk to each other, or kids who go to the same school but come from different neighborhoods and don't have the basis for forming alliances immediately available to them. Essentially, we need to acknowledge the fact that many of our kids see the world differently. We have to acknowledge the different experiences and the different backgrounds. But when we recognize and respect these differences, that doesn't mean that we have to reinforce and entrench the differences. We can respect the differences. We can bring people to the table. And having respected their differences, I have found, at least in my classes, that people are much more willing to compromise. They are much more willing, having felt recognized and respected for who they are, to then move beyond their own experience to see what other people may be saying. So I call that the therapeutic model, where you basically don't suppress difference, you don't deny difference, you don't erase difference but you work in a way that creates an atmosphere of trust and familiarity to respect the difference and then seek to move beyond. Certainly in the local community, it's a lot easier than at the national level, but it requires ongoing 
experience and exchange. Part of the problem that we have in this society in terms of talking about controversial issues is that we try it. And then we find that people are yelling or screaming at each other and we say, see, it doesn't work. Well, very few things that you try once work the first time. Part of what we have to do is to commit to continuing the conversation, even if we feel that the first effort is not successful. I think we can do better in terms of being prepared before we start the conversation. One of the things I do in a class I teach on issues of race and gender is to assure that people read the same um, prepared material. And then I ask the students to write reflection pieces about the material, and I circulate the reflection pieces among all of the students, which gives people the opportunity to see where everyone else is coming from, but it gives them that opportunity in a somewhat safe environment. Then we have some rules for the conversation. And one of the rules is that you try not to say things to deliberately offend other people. It's not an easy rule to follow, particularly because two years ago I had a student in one of my seminars who used to raise her hand within a two-hour class at least five times to say that something somebody had said just offended her. And this was really chilling the conversation. On the other hand, if she was genuinely offended, we didn't want to proceed without taking account of this offense. Well, I decided that I would have to intervene, talk to her after class, and ask her perhaps to write down each time that she's offended, and then write me a memo telling me about her experience and why she felt offended, because I suggested that she seemed to be more sensitive than some of the other students, and that this was chilling the conversation. Well, it turns out that she was in therapy, and that one of the things her therapist had told her is that she had to say every time somebody said something to offend her. And once I realized that, and we had this conversation, we both worked really hard, and one class, about three or four weeks later, the entire two-hour period passed, and she did not raise her hand once to say she was offended. And when she left the class, she came up to me and we hugged each other because it was a real breakthrough for her. So it suggests that it's not easy, but it can be done. Would you comment on the recent settlement made on the racism suit against Denny's? Isn't this a step away from the Reagan strategy you cited today? That is someone told and the government responded? Yes. But the Reagan administration, or President Reagan, as far as I can tell, is no longer president. And so I would assume that we are proceeding in a different direction. Let me, let me follow up on that one. Here are two questions about the current president. What is it about President Clinton that leads him to cave in on matters of principle. Your nomination, Kimba Woods, gays in the military. Are you satisfied with President Clinton's direction on civil rights? No. <laughs> I think, unfortunately, that this administration, or at least some people in this administration, are convinced that the problem or that the challenge of building consensus is accomplished by avoiding controversy. They are convinced that in order to obtain consensus, you must retreat at the first sign of a problem. I happen to disagree with that approach. I think, as I suggested, we can engage emotions, we can engage in the dialogue, even about the most controversial issues. And I also believe that people are desperate for leadership. They are desperate for leadership that has a moral vision and a moral compass, and that says this may be unpopular, but I think it is right. I um, was told by a friend that part of the problem with some people in this administration is that they're so busy reading the tea leaves that they don't have time to pour the tea. And I, and I do believe that you cannot govern by consensus if that means that you are simply reading the latest public opinion polls and then gauging your policies 
by what the public opinion polls say. And part of the reason that I am concerned about the role or the inordinate influence of public opinion polls is Kathleen Hall Jameson, who is the chair, the dean of the School of Communications at the Annenberg Center, the University of Pennsylvania, did a study. And one of the things she, she did a study of public opinion on healthcare. And one of the things that she found is that you might get a statistic. 40% of the people in this particular area support the Clinton health care program. And then you ask them, name one feature in the Clinton health care program that you just said you support. And something like 60% of the people who just said they supported a particular health care program could not name even one feature of that, pro that program. So oftentimes what we are getting when we are getting, quote, public opinion is simply an answer to a particularly worded question. It is not an informed answer and it is not an educated answer and it is not the only answer that people would give if they were educated first, if they were given a chance to think about a problem and if there were moral leadership that had a vision and was moving the country toward that vision. We have time for just one last question bef uh, before we conclude. Lots of other people have defined you as you began by telling us and as we all know. Um, I want to give you a chance to ask, I want to give you a chance to respond to the question, how do you see yourself as a person and how would you like to be remembered? I'm now delivering my own eulogy. <laughs> that's, a, that's exactly what it is. But you don't have well, to be I dead hope, to tell us. <laughs> right. I, I, I hope not to be remembered, but to be, um, to, to be seen and engaged with as a voice of conscience, as a person of principle. While my nomination was pending, Janet Reno gave me some advice. She said, if you stand on principle, you can't lose, because even if you lose, you still have your principles. Thank you very much.